Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's episode nine of the Debunking Economics podcast. I'm Phil Dobby and Steve Keen joins me in just a moment. And with all the talk about Europe and Brexit, and now with the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which Donald Trump says he's going to get rid of in the first day in the White House, the question of free trade is very much in the public eye. Which is better, opening your borders for free and open trade, or is a bit of protectionism acceptable? Well, free trade goes back to the early 1800s. 1817 was when David Ricardo wrote about it in his book On the Principle of Political Economy and Taxation. What a catchy title that is. And Adam Smith wrote about it as well in The Wealth of Nations. I'm not really quite sure who got there first. Perhaps Steve Keane, the uh, the learned professor, knows. So who who can we credit with this theory of free trade and, and, and comparative advantage, Steve? Well, the argument in favour of free trade, you can credit the entire profession of economics in many ways. There's only been a few rebel economists who've been on on the uh, anti-free trade side. Mind you, I'm pretty much in that camp myself. I'll explain why as I go on. But the person who gave us the actual original arithmetic, which then became mathematical argument in favour of free trade, was one David Ricardo. Right. Okay. So Adam Smith just said, oh, it seems like a good idea. And David Ricardo said, well, I'm going to put some sums behind this. Yeah, effectively. And it was actually arithmetic sums, so it made it easy for politicians to follow. Right, okay. But what I've never got about Ricardo's theory is, um, I'm not quite sure, you know, let's give this as an example. Say I'm very good at making bread, uh, Mm -hmm. and uh, I'm also better at you at making cars, but you're better at making cars than you are at bread, but still not as good as I am at either of those things. Mm. According to Ricardo's theory... I should make bread because I've got a comparative advantage over that. And you should make cars because that's what you're best at. But surely Mm -hmm. I should just make both of them because I'm good at both of them. And you should just do something else because you're not as good as I am. I mean, isn't that, um, according to Ricardo's theory... Have I got that right? You have, you have, and you've actually accidentally spotted the the weakness in Ricardo's argument as well, which is the argument that if you can see him full employment in okay. both in both cases. Right. So, so we understand the importance of uh, of full employment. Can you explain? I mean, you may not agree with it, but can you explain Ricardo's thinking? Yeah. Uh, the, the, the reason that Ricardo came up with this argument, by the way, actually, there's two reasons. One, he wanted to win a debate effectively with the parliamentarians. He was one. I'm not sure he's actually a parliamentarian in 1817, but he was part of parliament for quite some time uh, the other is because his real objective that's much more important was that he believed that uh, capitalism would hit a steady state at some point in the future but you could delay that steady state by getting as much money out of rent seekers which he saw as being landlords and though in fact he was one himself uh, get as much money out of out of the hand of rent seekers and get it to capitalists and his basic background was to say that uh, Wages are basically set by subsistence, and subsistence fundamentally means the cost of bread, which was called corn in the Corn Laws days. Um, and so, if you can, if you can drop the cost of corn to capitalists, they will pay the same amount. The amount of money they pay workers as wages will still be enough to buy the same amount of corn, so the workers remain alive. Uh, but by increasing the amount that capitalists get to spend 
uh, on uh, on production, there will be an increase in output and the dreaded stationary state will be delayed for longer. So he wanted to reduce the corn laws to really reduce the income going to the landlords and increase the amount of money going to the capitalists. And he came up with a very clever argument that uh, superficially persuaded some of his uh, political rivals, but effectively, more effectively, became the one horse like, you know, the, you know, the old idea of a one-trick pony? Yeah. Uh, they never does the trick all the time. That's yeah. economics. That, well, it's one trick. That's it's me, one trick too. Is, pardon? <laughs> that's, me, that's pretty much me, too. I do podcasts. That's uh, that's my trick. Uh, but, no, yeah, carry a, on. A range, a range of topics, it must be said. Uh, but the uh, but the, the style with Ricardo is this one little one-trick pony showing that specialisation increases production. So what he said was, imagine that England... Uh, because because what, what, what the, the, the case he found himself having to fight is pretty much the one you've just put to me, that uh, people would say, we opened up free trade. Uh, Portugal, which was the main competitor England faced at the time, uh, is better than us at everything. They'll specialise in everything. We'll have nothing. And he said, no, what will happen is it's, imagine that uh, England can produce a certain amount of cloth with, uh, I think he had 120 days of labour, and uh, it can produce a certain amount of wine with uh, 90 days of labour. And then he said, imagine Portugal can produce the same amount of cloth with 100 days right. of labour, but the same amount of wine with 70 days. That's not quite the numbers he used, but that's that's close enough for the idea. So what it means meant is that Portugal was relatively more efficient at producing wine than it was cloth, but better than England at both. And he said, what you simply have to do is reallocate all your workers, and that's the full employment assumption, reallocate all your workers in England from producing wine and cloth to just producing cloth. Ditto for Portugal, reallocate them all from uh, wine and cloth, just wine. You'll therefore get a greater amount of, of cloth being produced and a greater amount of wine than if each country tried to satisfy its own needs. And you then work out some sort of exchange rate or two and trade the surpluses and both countries have more wine and more cloth. Right. That was the and, – and all that's happened since then in, in many ways is that the – mainstream economists, the, the, the neoclassical school, who actually have a totally different approach to the theory of value than Ricardo. Their whole idea about what uh, determines the, the worth of things being produced isn't the opposite of Ricardo. Ricardo was actually an opponent of theirs, believe it or not, in terms of proto-neoclassicals. Uh, he was always challenging their theory of value. But they've simply modified it to say, well, rather than saying we should have uh, complete specialisation, uh, what we need to do is to change the uh, the price ratio between the two goods being produced. So that rather than having two separate price ratios in two countries, you get one price ratio that rules internationally and inside each of the countries. And that will mean that England moves slightly towards producing uh, more cloth than wine and Portugal moves towards towards producing more wine than cloth, but they still produce a certain amount of both. Yeah. And the efficiency game will come out of that reallocation of resources at full employment within each economy. Right. So, so Ricardo's so, so yeah. kind of theory is just a bit of an extreme, wasn't it? It was like saying, so going back to my theory where I'm saying, uh, you know, making bread or making cars, uh, mm-hmm. his, his theory was, well, I should just make the bread because I'm more cost, that's more cost effective to me. I can make more mm-hmm. money selling bread than I can selling some bread and a few cars. Uh, mm-hmm. But the but the reality of the situation is that's not going to happen. There's gonna, I'm I'm going to want to diversify, uh, and mm-hmm. as you say, you know, I need to. Uh, not everyone's going to be able to make bread. There's going to be some people who are better at cars, and um, and also the demand for bread might not employ everybody. I mean, how much bread can you eat? It's not going to employ everybody. Um, well, I mean, the, 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 so you saw no no problems with effective demand, right? 
And that's already one big hole in the in the equation. But the main uh, issue is, first of all, the assumption that it, any resources that get unemployed in one industry get picked up in another. Now, the, <laughs> and the normal thing people focus upon is labour, and of course I've focused on that so far. But the real weakness of the theory, and this is what thoroughly annoys me about people who champion this thing without thinking about it through fully, the real weakness is that machinery, which we call capital, is specific to particular industries. Yeah. So if you have a bread maker... Yeah, oh, well, an oven. Try and make a car no, with an oven. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> Can you go and cook me a car, Phil? I'd like, I'd like my car with four wheels on top. I mean, sorry, I meant on the bottom. Uh, literally, that's what's involved. Yeah. And you simply cannot do it. But they simply do this classical, neoclassical thing of saying, let's assume... Uh, that you can move capital between industries without cost. Right. Let's get real. You can't do that. And that's why they call half of America the Rust Belt, because the factories that were shut down by either free trade or by globalisation simply rusted in the place. They didn't get reallocated to anything. And what you therefore had was a net destruction in the productive capability of the economy. And that's why Trump has ended up being elected. Right. Because that's what people themselves see in their own backyards. They don't see neoclassical theory. They see the reality, which is the rust war, the rust belt. Right. But the rust belt, I mean, you said that was because of free trade. So is is that really the truth? Yeah. Is that really the truth? I mean, because I mean, are you therefore saying, look, you know, it's cheaper to import stuff that was made there, like cars, for example. It's cheaper mm. to imp import that from overseas mm. than it is to make it locally. And surely common sense would say, well, if that is the case, that's the way it is. You've got to find something else to make. Uh, I mean, sh surely you can't, if you, if you just say, well, no, we just don't want free trade, you're going to put up, uh, which is obviously the, the Trump approach, we're going to start putting up trade barriers, mm. then you, uh, I mean, you're creating false economies, aren't you? And you're losing those economies of scale. So, I mean, surely Ricardo, well, no, no, is, no, Ricardo is right about the idea of economies of scale. There's benefits of specialization in that you do get those economies of scale. Well, you're mixing up a few things there because he wasn't actually talking about returns of scale, but that is one of the positive basis of the reasons to expand trade because the bigger the market you're selling into, the larger the factory you can have. And if that larger factory gives you efficiencies which come out of scale, then then you can produce at a lower cost. Now, the, the classic example there is a, is a, is a blast furnace, for example. Uh, if you have a blast furnace of, uh, you know, which is, um, let's say it's uh, 10 metres uh, in diameter, and you talk about a perfect sphere, and you double that, the, the, your cost is actually the, the area of the steel on the outside, but your productive capability is the volume that you can contain inside. Now, if you can double the, the diameter, you, you know, you might, you, you, you sort of square the area, but you cube the volume. Yeah. So in that case, that's why you get economies of scale. And that's one reason why you want to have a larger market to sell into. So that's, that's the, but that's not an argument that Ricardo was considering at all. It's some, and nor is it in neoclassical theory. They, they tend to assume constant returns to scale. Uh, but the reality is with this sort of expanding market, that's why, you know, you want a larger market to sell into. And that's a realistic element. Uh, but that then means that you have to say, well, how do you get to that larger scale? And what you've got to do is invest. Now, it tends to be the country that invests that actually gets that larger scale rather than necessarily the one with cost advantages. But the whole neoclassical focus was on saying if it's cheaper to produce it now, then that's all that matters in doing the calculations. So when people often, and I saw this happening in a couple of tweets I had to answer to today where somebody said, what's the alternative? Well, the alternative is industrial development. You actually say, let's. This is what the Japanese and the and the Koreans and the Chinese have all done. Because if you apply comparative advantage, 
to Japan in, in uh, 1865, whenever that was, the uh, 1868 when the Meiji Restoration occurred, what would Japan have been famous for? Don't know. You tell me. Silk. Yeah, okay. Not something we no, think I, of. Don't yeah. we all buy silk from Japan? No. Uh, exactly. I mean, what Japan did instead was say, we, we, we simply have to industrialise. We've got to go and find the technology that the West has. They sent plenty of delegations around the world. That's where Monet, by the way, got some of his inspirations for his paintings, more the Japanese delegations turning up in, in France at the time. They checked out the technology. They saw how dramatically behind they were, and they wanted to industrialise and develop as quickly as possible. Of course, that gave them their participation in the First World War, but after the Second World War, exactly the same thing. They were completely wiped out. If they'd followed free trade advice, God knows what they would have exported at the time. They were producing virtually nothing. But the attitude was to industrialise as fast as possible. Right. Now, you and I, I'm old enough to remember what it was like to see Japanese cars in Australia in the early 60s. You were not quite that old, but you got the same idea. The idea of buying a Japanese car in the 60s was just a joke. You were buying a cheap rust bucket. Uh, the Datsun and the Nissans were, you know, the, the cheap little things you bought because you couldn't afford to buy a quality car like a, a General Motors uh, uh, Holden or a Ford. Um, fast forward 30 or 40 years and the Japanese ones, cars became the quality cars and the, the junky cars became the American designed ones and the, certainly the Australian locally made ones. Right. So you saying, are, you saying, are you saying they got there because they basically said, yes, we need to industrialize. So they put in protectionist measures so, yep. that, so that they grew? Yep. And they, they had, what, what they did was they had all sorts of incentives on the, on the companies that were domestic companies, like Honda, for example, which began as, as a bicycle manufacturer. Uh, when they started innovating and, and, and Mr. Honda added a, a, an engine to one of his bicycle frames, he got the first uh, Honda motorbike that way, then there was pressure to purchase that locally because it was actually much cheaper to do that than buy an imported one at that time for most Japanese. They simply couldn't afford the imported models anywhere after the devastation after the Second World War. But there was also strong pressure on them to, uh, in, 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 to advance as rapidly as possible, get their technology up to speed. And that was partly by dropping tariff barriers on a progressive basis, letting you know that at some point you were going to um, no longer have that protection unless you industrialised to get an advantage right. uh, by technological development over time, which is what they did. And now, they have so, that, now they've got that economy of scale that we we're talking about. So it's difficult to yeah. compete because they have the machinery to be able to produce cars, produce them well, mm. produce them at a, a, a low price. Uh, and, of course, now they, they would like free trade. They want to sell those cars as wide as they possibly can, don't they? And this, this is exactly the same thing that happened with England as well because England, one of the things that England, as well as the people focus on their, on their defensive attitude towards Portugal, uh, they also, when, when England began its, its early industrialization, period, the main producer of textiles was India. And at that stage, India's population was 70% urban and 30% rural. Then what happened, the, the, Indian, the English government slapped tariffs on. You couldn't import uh, Indian uh, garments into England except at you know, major markup, which gave you a market for the local local um, English industry. Then the steam steam engine was perfected by uh, by what you got spinning jennies being developed as well. So you could actually one 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 worker with the machine could produce ten times as much as as ten workers without the spinning jenny, and then actually thirty, forty, and fifty. Um, and consequently, the cost of English garments dropped radically. And then in, in about, I'm not quite certain, what was the 1830s, I think, they opened up trade with India now and free trade. And what happened was the, 
the all the uh, Jap the, all the Indian production of textiles was decimated by cheap English imports, and it was so devastating. Rather than a nice reallocation of labour, yada yada yada, the usual um, Ricardian fantasy. Uh, there was a huge depopulation of India, India cities, massive famines, and ultimately the population balance turned around the other way. You went from 70% urban and 30% rural to 70% rural and 30% urban, and that was the, the real beginnings of India being massively deindustrialized or de demanufactured uh, by England. Right. Yeah. So how the tide this, turns. So this. Yeah. So, so there's like two two ways that you can um, introduce protectionism. Then isn't there? There's there's the one way which, as you said, was you know the the Japan example where you're actually helping a uh, an industry to blossom. There's the other one which I suspect might be the Donald Trump approach, which is to uh, say, yeah, let's try and protect our industries which which are possibly dying and a little bit out of date. Well, yeah, that's that's the the deadly recipe that Australia followed and, and did all the stupid things like allowing five foreign manufacturers to come side with you know therefore tiny factories tiny production runs uh, overseas designs you know all those sorts of flaws you can make huge mistakes with it there's no doubt about that but if you follow the type of process that's that south korea followed that japan followed that china itself has also followed but on a, a larger scale and more export uh, dependent then it's possible to industrialize and develop rapidly and that would be what I think Trump would be going for to say, let's just, uh, you know, stop these cheap, cheap, cheap imports, but uh, require our factories to get up to speed very, very quickly. You certainly wouldn't want to re, uh, reignite the furnaces in what's left of the, the, the uh, rust built factories. That's for sure. But I mean, aren't you, isn't there a danger that you're just making things more expensive for, for, for everybody? So if you're saying, well, okay, mm-hmm. we're going to introduce tariffs on stuff that's made overseas more cheaply than we can make it here, uh, then you're pushing the price up. You're saying, well, we can't do it here because it's because we can't compete on price so uh, so it's going to be more expensive for everyone from now on because it's going to be more expensive to import uh, or you're going to have to buy something which is made locally which is going to at least in the short term going to be more expensive for us to produce and that's exactly the advice the Japanese were given right they didn't do that they 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 did protect the local industry they did uh, favor local manufacturers but they put them under immense pressure to develop their, their factories more rapidly and of course, they also the Americans also uh, being typical American arrogance. They thought after they won the Second World War, they didn't need to follow even their own advice. So there was an industrialist called Deming who was talking in favour of what he called just-in-time production methods, and he couldn't get a hearing in America. But the guess who invited him to come and visit and stay for a while? The Japanese, and they developed the just-in-time processes, which was actually an American invention, and built factories that were far more efficient than the American factories producing similar goods. And finally gave us, you know, Japanese cars, which were a lot cheaper than the Americans and higher quality as well. So the, the trouble that the reason that it's, it's fallacious to focus just on the cost of production argument is that it ignores the developments that happen over time. And what you, what you really get your growth out of isn't specialization, it's innovation. Mm. And if you put pressure on your firm so that they innovate courtesy of the protection you're giving them then you're going to get somewhere if you don't give that pressure just give them a monopoly behind which they can sell crap goods at high prices they're going to fail and of course that was the situation for australia with its ludicrously bad tariff policies but similar uh, policies which were aimed at protecting domestic manufacturers and remember of course a lot of australia's tariff barriers when they existed protected overseas manufacturers working locally Uh, the japanese and the korean cases give us companies like samsung and Sony and uh, and Honda 
and Toyota and so on, which are now global names. So uh, this is why I say the proof is often in the pudding. We can discuss these theories to the cows go home bored to death. Um, but the reality, when you look at it empirically, finds that it's not specialization that works, it's diversification. Right. And that's that's really the lesson I want to get across. So the, the, the conventional theory supports something which is the opposite of what's been successful. But, the, but there's politics involved in all of this as well, isn't there? Because there's, you know, it, it's pretty difficult to say to Japan, for example, look, we appreciate the fact that you want free trade and we're happy to uh, it, to import your cars but say for example uh, we'd like to innovate in electric vehicles to compete against those cars so we're going to protect our electric vehicle industry and we're going to put tariffs on on the stuff that you want to send us and that's the problem it is something where where it can be uh, you know tit for tat policies can be can mm. be followed so yeah. you do and that's one reason why all these limitations apply of course the other thing about trade is that trade is a zero sum game uh, your exports are somebody else's imports so if a country gets a, a specialization that means it uh, or they get a successful industry that means that it gets a uh, a huge trade advantage then that is actually going to generate it more more money that it can invest and grow over time faster than you where you where you're running a trade deficit so all these things are biased in favour of the country that manages to get a mercantile advantage. And for that reason, that's one, that that's why we set up the things like the WTA and, and so on to try to prevent that uh, individual advantage at collective expense. The trouble is they're driven by a set of theories which are simply wrong. And if we actually get to the stage where we're saying what we're trying to limit is a successful policy, uh, being used to, to damage your rivals. The WTO, because it's believed mainstream economics, pretends that in fact, if you do these things, you'll hurt yourself. And that's, if you think, if you think about the case you just made to me a moment ago, what you were saying is if you put up the tariff barriers, it'll, it'll work out bad for you in the long run. Now, what you find is, in fact, the countries that do it end up getting a mercantile advantage, running a trade surplus like Germany and Japan have been doing for decades now, despite floating exchange rates. And those, that means, that consequently, they're, they're getting more investment funds and more capacity to innovate and maintain that advantage over time. So we do need to have controls on countries doing this, but it's not because it's counterproductive to uh, defend your own industries. Uh, it's often quite successful to do that and then use that as a basis to build those economies of scale and move into the international market. Well, of course, one of the other reasons that's been given in the past is because uh, uh, free trade creates peace. You know, so long as we're all <laughs> happily trading together, uh, we're not fighting each other. That's working out well right now, isn't it? <laughs> well, uh, I don't, well, I don't know. Let's check Europe in 50 years' time and see what happens. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, it is a, what actually works is if you get to the stage where you actually understand what, what is in various people's advantages and work out rules that, that share the advantages around or stop uh, exploitive positions being taken. Uh, the trouble is, as I said, that these, the, the arguments in favour of free trade are based on a whole set of fallacies. And we've, we've seen the outcome of, of building your economic policy on a set of fallacies and ignoring the side effects, the, the, the flaws that mean that those supposed good uh, the good things for you become bad things for you. Yeah. And the key thing that matters for free trade is the good thing was supposed to be specialisation, more output and a sharing of advantages. Uh, now what we find is that it's been specialisation actually is, is, a, is a bad policy in general. You're better off to have a diversified base. I'll explain why that's the case uh, a bit later. Um, and the benefits that existed have accrued to one particular social class 
and not been shared at all. And now what's being said in the aftermath, people saying, we're sick of this, we want we want to go back to something different. They're saying, oh, it's, oh, it's sorry, we forgot to share the benefits, but don't worry, the winners can compensate the losers, so we'll start doing that. Now let's keep on doing the free trade. It's still ignoring the fact that the actual theory itself doesn't make sense. So, so, uh, so let's look yeah. at this idea of diversification then, because, I mean, because oh. the, the counter to that obviously is, look, if we establish an industry and that becomes a, a, one of the dominant industries in our country, and maybe you have two or three uh-huh. of those, but you build up the support network. You have other industries that need to supply that industry, and that's how, uh-huh. you know, and they're, and they're geographically close. That, that, that's a, a logical reason not to have too many different industries in, in, in your country, isn't it? Well, the, the support industries themselves are an argument for diversification. And this is the, this was a, what's been found empirically as well by what's called the Atlas of Economic Complexity, which is a, a research group of computer scientists and data miners, not economists, therefore that's much more trustworthy than economic theory, uh, based at the University of Harvard University. And this is Donald Trump friends, friends are listening, get a hold of these guys. You're, you're not going to like their, their, their hairdos. They've got a couple of uh, pretty hippie types inside the company, but they're their research is, is first rate. And what they've found is by looking at the, the detail of the, I think it's called the SITC database, the uh, Standard International uh, Trade uh, classification database. They've drilled down right I think, down to the eight-digit level, where you're really talking about, you know, 25 millimeter screws versus one-inch uh, one-inch screws uh, definitions, and looked at the pattern of trade between all the world's countries over the last 40 or 50 years. And in looking at that, they've they've realised that. First of all, countries that have a more diversified industrial base are the ones that grow faster, not the ones that are more specialised. Mm. So that's against the, the comparative advantage argument. But secondly, they said where new industries come from is pretty much out of having adjacent industries that you can combine together to produce a new product. Yeah. And my favourite example of those adjacent industries is the sailboard, because sailboards were invented by combining surfboards and sails now (laughs) you'll do that if they're both made in the same country it's much much harder to do that if if you got them made in one country but not made in another so that's that's the reason diversification one of the reasons diversification is important that uh that lets you innovate new industries by combining existing ones you can't do them if you don't have them locally Mm, yeah and i guess a final point and this is a i guess an observation more than a question uh but i mean we it's it looks like we don't really have free trade anyway because we have free trade agreements and look if it was a real free trade agreement it would just be a piece of paper saying we want free trade between our two countries but of course they run into hundreds of pages because there's all of these uh, conditions that are associated with it that uh, uh, mm-hmm. you know we, we want to protect this industry we want to protect that industry uh, this is fair game over here uh, so you know there are and I guess that is because countries are saying um, that you know there's certain things that we do want to nurture and develop and uh, we, we don't want to make that available to free trade well, it's, it's more the sheer legal framework of business that these things have, get so complicated with and also things like intellectual property rights and things like that, which are often can be quite insidious. In fact, they can be talking about competition while defending uh, intellectual monopolies, Tell like me about Mickey it. Mouse, for example. Um, so that that's that that is more the issue there. But if fundamentally, a lot a lot of economic theory comes out of having a, a blank piece of paper and drawing a diagram on it and pretending that can describe the real world. And the trouble is, the real world is far more complicated than that. Doesn't actually work that that simply. And of course, the, the when you draw a piece of paper, you're drawing a static diagram. We live in a dynamic world. So the the, the concepts that have come out of this arguing in totally in favour of free trade and making it a, a um, uh, contrast between free trade on one hand and complete autarky on the other. It's utterly unrealistic. 
And what you find is successful is industrial development over time and, and getting those economies of scale for your industry. Then in that case, you have the potential that one country that gets an advantage maintains that indefinitely, right. which can therefore weaken other countries. So you need to have some sorts of restraints. But to do and, that, so you've got to put up some yeah. trade barriers to do that. And to do that, the government has to pick what those barriers are going to no, be and where they're no, going to be. Well, or you can actually have an international uh, you know, agreement about it, which is more realistic. But the WTO doesn't have to be something which is dedicated to eliminating all trade barriers. It could be something which is dedicated to eliminating enormous trade surpluses, for example. Right. And that was actually one of the intentions that Keynes had for the monetary system of the world, which we never got uh, out of the Bretton Woods Agreement. But a similar thing where you said the emphasis is on if a country is having too high, you know, extremely high trade surplus, for example, Japan or Germany or China, then that has to be the focus of attention, getting that trade surplus down. And that gives you a very, very different orientation to saying, let's just control and try to reduce trade barriers. But uh, Japan's not going to be too happy about that. Oh, this is, people aren't happy about it because mercantile policies work. And this is the opposite of what, again, the free trade case uh, argues, because uh, economists try to argue against protection in the argument that if you um, if you attempt to protect your economy, you're going to have higher costs and come out uh, suffering. You're going to shoot yourself in the foot. In fact, countries that run these sorts of policies and try to promote their own exports and minimise their imports and therefore get a trade surplus do well in the long term because it gives them more investable funds and more capacity to get those economies of scale. So it does end up being something which can be bigger than a neighbour and you do need to control it. You do need to, uh, to, uh, to admit you're involved in a bit of a, a trade war and to limit how extreme that trade war gets. But that's not at all been what the WTO has done. And of course, in the process, we've got countries like Germany running a trade surplus of the order of 10% of its GDP every year. And that is damaging the, the, uh, the economic prospects of the rest of the world. Okay, uh, we'll leave it there. Uh, I think there's lots to talk about to follow on from that discussion, though, about how you'd imply uh, you'd actually introduce a policy like that. But we'll we'll mm. leave that we'll leave that for a, a future edition. Uh, Steve, thanks for now. Thank you, mate. Welcome to talk. And I do like that idea that the uh, World Trade Organization is focused on evening out the balance of trade across the world rather than uh, just pushing free trade, which arguably encourages some to grow their surplus, obviously at the expense of others. When did they lose that idea in the grand scheme of things? I wonder. Well, look, next time. Private debt and government debt. Why historically have the two counterbalanced each other? And why, all of a sudden, over recent years, are we seeing both increasing at astronomical rates? Uh, We'll talk about that next on the Debunking Economics podcast with Professor Steve Keen. I'm Phil Dobby. We'll see you then. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. If you've enjoyed listening to Debunking Economics, uh, even if you haven't, you might also enjoy The Y Curve. Each week, Roger Hearing and I talk to a guest about a topic that is very much in the news that week. It's lively, it's fun, it's informative. What more could you want? So search The Y Curve in your favourite podcast app or go to ycurve.com to listen.